Thank you for tuning into Moa's third season of the Never Stop Serving podcast. This season, we are sharing war stories from Iraq and Afghanistan told by the men and women who live them. This week, we speak with retired CW5 Doug Englund, an Army Chinook pilot with more than 2,500 combat missions under his belt. Anglin started his career as an enlisted crew chief aboard a Huey in Desert Storm. After leaving the service for a brief period, Anglin rejoined and went to flight school as a warrant officer. For the next 21 years, Anglin flew with the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment and co-piloted the first helicopter into Afghanistan following the September 11th attacks. Doug was chosen by Admiral William McRaven to plan the air component of the mission designed to capture or kill Osama bin Laden, calling him, quote, without a doubt, the finest army aviator of our generation. We join the story just as September 11th occurs. I think everybody was angry and we went on the hunt. Uh, Special operations went on a hunt specifically looking for the, those that brought down our Twin Towers. And I invite every American to go to Ground Zero any time of the year. It's very humbling. It, it's a reminder, and I don't think that reminder will ever expire, that that threat still exists today. And so the hunt for those that were responsible for 9-11 was immediately in effect, which meant special operations forces across the world, whether they were the horse soldiers up north or they were uh, those of us that were into the South that were coming in from different, different angles into Afghanistan, looking for those responsible. And we all knew that bin Laden and Zawahiri and all of them, which is, was recent in the news as well, too, uh, were responsible for the attack on 9-11. So it was payback time. We wanted to do this for, um, for America. We wanted to do for those countries that lost uh, their citizens in the World Trade Center. It wasn't just the U.S. So this was for the world. This was to then now find the number one terrorist in the world uh, against all nations. And so it, it, there was a lot of meaning behind it and it never expired. That, that feeling and that drive stayed for 10 years until we finally were able to find and fix where bin Laden was. And then compile a team and really try to be as, as professional and, and as accurate as possible took some time. We had Navy, we had Marines, we had dogs, we had interpreters, we had army, uh, all together working together in unison. How does that mission unfold for you? You are, you're the Chinook pilot and you are the lead. So how does that mission unfold? We know how it ends, right? We, we know it's the president coming in front of the American public and saying, we got the number one. And here's the proof that we got him. We know how it ended, but how did it start? It all started with that whole team concept. It started with uh, the intelligence community thinking they have a lead. They, it started with a community that's, that's both joint military and other agencies looking to see, uh, and bring their information together. The problem is every time that we would go after somebody of high visibility, like bin Laden, the, you know, with today's social media and with today's uh, ability to, to, to move and be, and be seen and witnessed, 
you know, there were some things that uh, we had to kind of keep uh, keep quiet. And we had to keep it quiet from us ourselves because we didn't really want to spook, you know, this mission. We really didn't want the information to get out. And uh, Bin Laden is, was very well, was, past tense, was very well connected and had visibility. If anything looked out of the ordinary, uh, he would elude. And he was an elusive individual, elusive uh, leader of that of that world. And he, he would escape. And we had a lot of near attempts that uh, he slipped through our fingers many times before. This episode is sponsored by MOA Insurance Plans, administered by Association Member Benefits Advisors. The MOA Insurance Plans program offers a variety of plan options and stands with you at every stage. Whether you are currently serving, transitioning from active service, or retired, learn more at www.moainsurance.com. So the team selected... And now you find yourself actually on this mission. Take us through that night. This is the night that you are now going after HVT number one. For those that don't know what that means, high value target number one. I think I could speak for the team, both the air and the ground force that that, that crossed the border that night. It wasn't a, it wasn't a surreal, anxious, anxiety moment because the team that we had built uh, with all the SEALs and all the air crew, this, they were, everybody was well seasoned. This wasn't the first time. In fact, it wasn't that we were going to go into a very violent, I remember one of the SEALs uh, either in a podcast or in a book said that, that there was a chance that they were not coming. We were not coming back home that night. Um, I don't think I personally did not have that feeling. I knew that there was a lot at stake. There were some areas, you know, we're in an area that that we have never flown before, but we were ready. There wasn't a, a teammate. There wasn't a team member that wasn't ready. And I will tell you, the more seasoned you become as a special operations force, the, the more numb you are when it comes to stress, when it comes to this type of environment, because we had a very senior crew, both air crew and the ground force. And that was the whole purpose of, of picking a crew like this. That way, the, ang- the anxiety just wasn't there. Now, of course, you develop an adrenaline for every mission. Um, and you know that there are some missions that were much more violent than this one. When I say violence, there was pre-assault fires. There are fires on an objective. Uh, there's loss of life. You know, there's, it's just a very dangerous mission. And this was not really perceived to be one of those. Um, and so it's a different type of anxiety. We knew the weight was on our shoulders, but, uh, we had such good leadership. And I'll tell you, we had from the admiral to the uh, director of the CIA, even to the president, uh, president Obama had such an, a, a remarkable sense of maturity when it came to this mission. Um, such a vast difference when he first took office into where, he was with us every step of the way on this one here with Admiral Craven. Um, so you had that backing. So you knew that there was not that type of nervousness um, until we crossed the border into Pakistan. That's when we realized that we aren't in Kansas anymore. We knew that we are now here. That's when it became surreal. That's when we knew that, okay, all right, this is really happening because I will tell you hundreds of times in the past that we would 
uh, go after bin Laden and it was canceled or we go after bin Laden. He's not there. Or so we're at this now point that this is really happening. And, and, you know, everybody's mind was like, I sure hope he's there. You know, I sure hope the intelligence community has, has this one, right. And, um, and then that leads all the way up until we heard the, uh, the code word Geronimo, you know, for God and country Geronimo was the, the, sur- the next surreal moment. And it was silence in our aircraft that we got him. Not to mention, you know, several minutes prior to that, I was very upset that we had crashed a helicopter on the objective. Um, and that uh, couldn't believe that, you know, we'd gone through so much planning and so much rehearsal and so many, all these present preventive measures to avoid something like that, that it actually happened. And so you always want to know why uh, you want to know how. And um, we found out, you know, later it was just a, a miscalculation of density, altitude, you know, air temperature and lift and coefficient of lift and, and ended up just running out of power. Doug, can you go, so, can you go back a little bit? Cause yeah. you kind of just got right into it, the helicopter crash, but that's when you got brought into the mission, right? You had to fly in at that point. So when the, uh, I was never, uh, planned to go to the objective area. I was never planned to even see the Abbottabad Valley. You know, I was a contingency, but, but, uh, uh, myself and our crew and, and another craft was another Chinook was on standby just in case something were to happen. Uh, we had extra gas, we had an extra assault force, we had extra everything, everything you could think of, we had extra of. And in this case, we needed an extra lift to get people out. And that's where uh, I was brought into the mix. Uh, but it was our plan. Um, Chinooks are very large, very loud. And, you know, there are smaller aircraft that can get into an area that, you know, are, are better suited for, for the mission. And so thank goodness that we covered every base because we're able to get all of our sailors and soldiers off and dog off the objective and bring them home. And so that was the testament of our leaders going through rehearsals and contingency planning. It was just phenomenal that everything was covered. What was going through your head in that moment when you heard about the crash? Uh, when I heard the crash, I was, I was actually very upset and I was very vocal about, you know, you know, this, this is absolutely uncalled for, you know, I was just very critical about the aircraft crashing and then uh, had a uh, major in the jump seat who grabbed my shoulder. And so I was, I was critical about the terminology. So you, you're familiar with the movie Black Hawk Down. And we were very, very particular ever since the to never say on the radio Black Hawk Down. You just don't say down. That means that you have crashed. So there's other terms you could use, but the term was used that, you know, we have an aircraft down. And I was so critical not to use that term. You know, I was thinking things are safe. And then that's when we realized, well, this aircraft truly was down. And then I started becoming a little more compassionate and less critical. And then we heard shortly after Forgotten Country, I, I passed Geronimo, which meant uh, either dead or alive, we we have him. And that's when the goosebumps really, you know, you think with all the equipment and how hot it is and, and everything you have, you could feel the goosebumps through your uniform that, holy cow, we actually we actually got him. And But you get right back in the game phase, you get right back in contingency mode, and we went right in, in straight into the objective area to, to pull the guys out. 
what was it like? So you're 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 moving from one emotion to the next. So you're you're dealing with the fact that you've heard this radio call that a black hawk just went down, and now you're going from contingency mode where you're just in the back, just prepared to now you're moving into action. You're going into the objective. And now you're flying into the objective. Take our listeners through that. What are you seeing? What are you feeling? What is going on? Well, crossing into the Abadabada area is like flying into a, a major metropolis you know, city here in, in the United States. It's well laid. You got towers, you got power lines, you have traffic, you have everything. So it's like it's different from what we're, you know, you're flying in Iraq and Afghanistan in some cases. And so it's, it's really weird. So um, having looked at that area for so much and had studied that area, it felt like I'd been there before. And you can feel the temperature. You can feel the humidity. You can see that this is not an area. This is not a war zone. This is a very urbanized, very well-developed, high-end living area within Pakistan. And so crossing over, it was just so surreal. There was, there was no lighting. It was, it was late at night. Uh, when I say lighting, there were no police lights. There was nothing. So there really, there was some noise made by, you know, aircraft being in the area. Um, and maybe some, you know, some gunfire that was on the objective. So right around the objective area, there was some commotion as in people were starting to gather to, out of interest. So it would be almost like, in your neighborhood, you heard some some small explosions and some gunfire. You know, you'd call the police. You would call the police, and so blue lights were starting to appear, and so all that's starting to converge on on this objective. That some of those things you don't think about it, but they'd be a natural reaction that you would have here in the U.S. You'd call the cops, and uh, that was a concern. But we had we had thought about that, um, so we had planned. So we had time on our hand but rapidly was was closing. So the more time on the objective area was going to give us a disadvantage. We knew at that point that we had to get out of there. And so then that's why landing right as the aircraft exploded, uh, that was demolition by the SEALs, uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't demo the aircraft and then fly in later. You know, we just didn't have that luxury of time. We had to get out of there and do pretty much all at the same time. So you were able to fly that mission, get everybody, I'm assuming, safe off. Are you Were you able to successfully fulfill the mission by getting everybody off of the X? Everybody was, we pulled everybody off the mission completely unharmed, uh, to include the dog with a lot of material, and we had one body bag. So that was a success. Yeah, so we, had, we had one extra. We had a stowaway on the way back. And then we had to get out of there. And so when you, would you create a ruckus like this in a country, you know, it's just like here in the States. If, if something like were that to happen here, the alert notification goes nationwide, statewide. And, and so they're looking for us and they, uh, they were searching for us as in the, the Pakistani air force. And they tried, tried shooting us down, uh, whether it be electronically or other means they, they were looking for us because they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know who we were. Um, we didn't tell them. And so they, the whole country was on alert. So you can imagine coming out of that country uh, and as fast as we can, um, 
And what I'm working on now, that's where I really wish we could have flown a heck of a lot faster because a helicopter is only so fast. Um, we think it's fast, but from the grand scheme maneuver, it's not that fast. But uh, it took seemed like it took forever. That seemed like to be the longest part of the entire night was just trying to get home. And it was it was weird to say that it felt good to be back in Afghanistan. <laughs> How long a flight weird. was that on the way out? Um, well, it's on the way back. It's you know forty five minutes to an hour, but uh, it seemed it seemed like an eternity. This episode is sponsored by Mo Insurance Plans, administered by Association Member Benefits Advisors. I'm here with retired Chief Master Sergeant Mark Stevenson, U.S. Air Force veteran, and Mo is Senior Director for Business Development and Products and Services. And we're going to talk about Mo Insurance Plans. Thanks for being here, Mark. Tony, thanks for having me. So the Mo Insurance Plans program, this serves tens of thousands of members. Why is the Mo Insurance program so important? So, Tony, to start, this is a MOA-endorsed product, and it provides members access to a variety of insurance plans. It offers TRICARE supplement insurance, we have life insurance policies, a pet insurance plan, and much more. Plus, MOA is always looking for new products to evolve with our members' needs and evaluate existing programs to ensure we continue to meet MOA's high standards. Those are a lot of offerings. What are the most popular plans for members? So programs such as our pet insurance will continue to grow in popularity, but term life insurance and our MetaPlus TRICARE supplement plans remain the most popular, and our MetaPlus program is absolutely the largest plan. Tell me more about the MetaPlus TRICARE supplement insurance plan and what makes it so popular. So this plan is specifically for those under age 65, and it pairs with TRICARE to help pay expenses not fully reimbursed by TRICARE. These include cost shares, co-pays, prescription drug co-pays, and several others. What do members say about MetaPlus? So first, MOA's endorsement of MetaPlus certainly makes our members more comfortable with this valuable plan. Our members are very pleased with the policy and the quick payments to their health care providers. And due to our electronic claims process, their claims are automatically paid to their providers without needing to complete any paperwork. This all leads to prompt, hassle-free payments for our members. One more question. How can members find out more about these programs? So members can learn more about MetaPlus and other MOA-endorsed insurance plans by visiting our website at www.moainsurance.com. So I want to take our listeners to after, but I want to talk about something that you just said in your story. And you talked about how even, you know, years later, it is crystal clear to you about that night. You can draw details of that event. And I have a partner that has spent 26 years of his life in the military, and he just recently retired, and 20 of it was in special operations. And we talk a lot about mental health. But in that special operations community, you know, mental health, sleep, stress, TBI, memory loss, hypervigilance are all common. And so where you are today, you know, what has life have been like for you? Because you've flown 2,500 missions in your life. You have done 34 deployments. You have earned a silver star. You have done so many cool things. What has life been like since you've taken off the uniform let me add to that. Um, there's there's a there's a couple dynamics. Uh, one of them was coming off a very high profile, in the news, highly advertised, baseball games stopping in the seventh inning to chant um, USA because they heard about the the killing of Bin Laden. Uh, 
It, just think of that impact. I was, I was getting my oil changed, but four days afterwards back home and they're, everybody's talking about it. And you're just sitting in the room and you're looking at, I was looking at my wife and she's like, if, if they only knew, um, that they're talking. So you, there's that profile and it's that sensation of stardom, but you can't tell anybody. And because you're still in the missions, you're still, and you don't want to tell anybody, you don't want to tell, you know, in some of the cases how we did it. Um, because, you know, there are still things that are exercised today. And so you just don't want, you don't want to put our other service members in harm's way by telling exactly, you know, the details. But it was that following September, same year, where uh, I was in the middle of with, with one other Chinook, and I was the flight lead, and we rescued an EOD tech off a special forces team in uh, the Panjway, the most dangerous valley in Afghanistan during the day, to save his life, and achieved and was awarded uh, our crew, myself included, were awarded the, our second Silver Star. So I ended up with two silver. So, so it was very humbling. It had to then take another mission to distract me from such a stardom style mission. You can almost, you can almost imagine how Medal of Honor recipients feel that there was a specific mission at a specific point in time where they're being recognized for. And I feel like that's where we were at. So those that have achieved such high profile missions, it took me a combat mission to ground me and humble me to the point where like, okay, you know, it, it reminded me that I happen to be there on that rotation, but there are men and women that are doing this today that are in harm's way. So you're not the only one. So you're not alone. And so then when you start getting closer to the end of your career, you start, if you don't, if you can't pull yourself out of your, your own, which I found out personally, that if I keep thinking about the things that I did and things that, that are troubling me, um, I think I'd be in a different spot. Right now, I understand that there are men and women that are in harm's way right now as we speak. And so it created a new mission for me of retiring and working for, uh, I work for Bell Helicopter and we're producing aircraft that will potentially give our service members an advantage and to make it more survivable. And so it's, you know, and, but not every service member coming out has that opportunity. So I couldn't imagine coming out into a, a profession that just didn't have a, such a self-worth because you have such a self-worth and service members are put on a pedestal and that you are doing these things. And, and so if you don't get that, that return and to make you feel like that you are just as worthy now as you were when you were in combat, Years ago, months ago, days ago, um, I think that's where the mental health, that may be the root of our mental health, because I have felt it. I felt that if I did not uh, recognize myself or was recognized for the things that I had done, my self-worth would, would change. And so and that's, that's probably the best way to, to put it. And, and I feel like the missions that I have done were truly at the highest level. And so, but you have to realize that a single bullet can end a service member's life. And that fear is there at all levels. Uh, you could be at a forward operating base and you're being mortared. Uh, there are service members that are terrified because uh, they're thinking that the next mortar is coming in their tent and is taking them out. 
and it, they could live with it, could live with it for the rest of their life. So one thing I've noticed is that even though we've done some very unique things and very violent things uh, over my career and other special operators' careers, that doesn't demean other service members for not being in that type of fight because you you can't put a a blanket statement on any type of fear of what a service member experiences. So now, now I, I, that's why I love talking it through and, and talking to other service members and don't ever make it to where one veteran is more important than the other just because of the things that they've done. Doug, thank you so much for spending your time with us, walking through your 33 years and just giving so much to our country and just sharing your story from the front and just even now just giving back and just figuring out a way to make the next generation be inspired by what you do and still continuously doing. So thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to, to share some words and hopefully it'll, if, if it helps one person to relate, then um, that's the goal. The Never Stop Serving podcast is the official podcast of the Military Officers Association of America. Produced by Tony Lombardo, Kevin Lilly, and Mike Moronis, and hosted by Lieutenant Colonel Olivia Nunn, U.S. Army Retired. MOAA is the largest and most influential association of military officers. Learn how you can be a part of it at www.moaa.org.